0: This is a CNIB Foundation podcast.
1: Hello, I'm James DeNoss, and this is Unbound. Our guest today is Bruce Meyer. He is a prolific writer, the author of 64 books of poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and literary journalism. He's also a professor of English who teaches at Georgian College in Barrie and Victoria College at U of T., In addition, he was Poet Laureate of the City of Barrie and is no stranger to broadcasting, having hosted the Great Books for the CBC program this morning with Michael Enright. We sat down with Bruce earlier this year at the CNIB studios in Toronto to discuss his national bestseller, The Golden Thread, a reader's journey through the Great Books. This is part one of that conversation. Hello, Bruce. Welcome to Unbound.
0: Nice to be here, James. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
1: Well, I have been looking forward to this conversation. In The Golden Thread, you examine some of the most influential and foundational works of Western literature, from the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and the Bible, all the way to Virginia Woolf and James Joyce. It certainly inspired me to start doing a lot of rereading. Was that part of the reason you wrote your book, to reawaken interest in these works?
0: Well, I realize that literature is a conversation. Um... And the strange thing is that, that the book didn't really start off as a book. It, it started off as a question that was posed to me one night when I was sitting on a patio in Austin, Texas at the home of a Pakistani-British-Brazilian novelist by the name of Zulfikar Ghos. Mm-hmm. He was a friend of my sort of mentor, David Wevel, who's a Canadian poet who lives in Texas. And uh, Zolf said to me, well, you've just finished your doctorate. And I said, yeah. And he says, what are you doing? And you're on a postdoc now. And I said, yes. And I'm traveling all over the place. And I'm looking for lost World War I Canadian literature, a whole decade of it, which I found. And uh, Zolf said to me, well, what are you reading in the meantime? And I said, what, what do you mean? He said, when, when you're sitting in airports, what are you reading? And I said, well, newspapers, <laughs> magazines. And he says, go back and fill in all the gaps in your education. Go back and look at all the things you could have, you should have read, you know, from your BA through to the end of your PhD and see what's missing. And so I started off with the 20th century and, you know, reading backwards was an interesting, you know, experience in that I realized that, geez, I've read, you know, books one, two, and 12 of Paradise Lost, but not the other ones. Mm -hmm. Um, I hadn't read Dante, for example, and I hadn't read uh, the Theban plays. And I suddenly, As I was working my way backwards, by the time I got back to Homer, there was this moment of eureka when it all started to come together and coalesce. And it it is possible, and this is what's behind the golden thread, it is possible to see literature as a complete whole, as something that is a a unity in some ways. Um, And so uh, the next thing I knew, I was was back in Toronto, Uh, the only job I could get at the time was uh, teaching at the School of Continuing Studies. And the only course was a literature course. And they said, here, make this what you want. You just call it literature. And so I turned it into a great books course. At the time, there were no great books courses being taught in Canada. And in the course of doing the great books course, uh, I think it was the second year I taught it, there was a young student or a young woman in the class who put up her hand and said, by the way, I'm a junior producer for this morning at CBC. You've got a great voice for radio. Would you consider doing a half hour broadcast on the Bible as literature for Christmas for this morning? And uh, so I went into the studio with Michael Enright and Enright said, look, this is great stuff. Let's turn this into six broadcasts. We'll do a mini series for Christmas of 1998. And, um, what happened was that the broadcast took off took off. The uh, um, Metamorphosis sold out in, um, in 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 Saskatchewan, or in, actually in Montreal. The Aeneid sold out in Saskatchewan. Boethius shut down the Trans Canada Highway, the Consolation <laughs> of Philosophy, because uh, in Blind River, of all places, because my sister-in-law was the bank manager there, and she asked the OPP officer, "What are all these rigs doing at the side of the road?" And he said. Oh some guys talking about Boethius there's a book club and all the truckers had decided to pull their rigs over in Blind River and listen to the broadcast and have a discussion about Boethius's consolation of philosophy and out of that um somebody said you know would you consider doing a book and write it up as a book and i realized that they that originally i i i could not do a the, the sort of academic book that I'd been trained to write. I had to, in fact, make it accessible to the general reader. I had to make literature understandable, but also I had to show readers how all the great books connect, that they are an ongoing conversation, that one writer informs the next one.
1: So your aha uh-huh moment was seeing, really, maybe following the thread metaphor, uh, seeing the Western literature as a tapestry that everyone's contributing to.
0: Yeah, I originally the, the title, the original title I had for it, and it was rejected by Harper Collins. Was the uh, the title was one story, um, and they said, "Where's that from?" Well, it's from Robert Graves's poem "To Wan at the Winter Solstice." Mm-hmm. There is one story and one story only. And they said, no, you have to have another something much more engaging. So what came to me was the idea that the conversation literally starts um, with the story of Theseus.
1: Yes. Oh, and, and for our listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar <clears throat> excuse me, with the Greek myths or need a reminder, tell us about the origin of your title, The Golden Thread. Let's explore the metaphor, if you will.
0: Well, you well, <clears throat> see, literature, when you start looking at it and you walk up to it, it just looks like a lot of words. So there's books and books and thousands of books that you could read. Um, the problem is that it's hard to sort of navigate. At the core of Western literature, the, the, the myth of Theseus is there. And the story about Theseus is that they, there was a a, 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 tra- a treaty that was struck between mm-hmm. Athens and Crete. Uh, and Athens had to provide uh, Crete every year with 18 of their best youth. Um, that were to be fed to the son of King Minos uh, of Crete, who was in fact half half man, half bull. And in order to keep this monster under control, they put him in a, in a labyrinth or a puzzle, mm-hmm. essentially a, a, win- a series of <clears throat> winding corridors that had been designed by the uh, mythical architect Daedalus. And um, what happened was that when Theseus was chosen as one of the doomed youth of Athens, Um, he um, arrived in Crete and he fell in love with Minos' daughter who was a legitimate human being, um, Ariadne. And she said, look, don't go in there unarmed. Here's a little dagger for you and plunges into the neck of the minotaur. But in order to find your way in and find your way out, tie a ball of golden thread to the doorknob on the way in and unwind it as you go so you'll be able to find your way out again in the darkness. And If you take a look at the metaphor that's involved in that, it's the idea that all of literature is essentially a labyrinth. But the way we sort of learn to navigate it is with some sort of key or some sort of process that uh, enables us to find our way in and find our way back out again. And the question is, why do we want to do that? Well, it's all about our survival.
1: You know, there are so many levels to the myth of Theseus. For example, the the origin of the uh, Minotaur is when um, uh, Minos was first king of Crete. Mm -hmm. He was in competition with his brothers, and he wanted a sign to legitimize his kingship. And so he asked Poseidon for a sign, and Poseidon sent this glorious white bull out of the sea. Mm -hmm. But here was the first betrayal. Minos loved this bull, and so he substituted the bull. And this angered Poseidon who in turn made his wife, made Minus' wife, fall in love with the bull. And with the help of Daedalus, she mated with the bull. So basically, a monster, this monstrous hybrid...
0: Uh, resulted from the disobedience or insult to a god. Well, there's two things in that. One is that uh, it's, this is the point of Ovid's metamorphosis. You never want to have human contact with the gods because nothing good comes of it. Uh, you get abominations of nature. You get um, horror and terror coming out of that. You have the roots of gothicism yeah. in the contact between you know, uh, the, the gods and men. But the second point is about the Th- Theseus myth. Is that the Theseus myth is integral to the whole thought process behind Western culture and Western civilization. Um, in the book I did as a follow-up to The Golden Thread, a book called Heroes, it's based on the Theseus myth as well uh, because hero theory, which is a large, uh, complicated you know, morass of, 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 of interpretations of what is a hero and how does a hero function, Um, that's been expressed by people like Otto Rank or uh, 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 Lord uh, Lord Raglan or, in fact, Thomas Carlyle or Northrop Frye or Joseph Campbell. In order to understand all this, they've created a rather complicated interpretation. And I took a look at the myth Mm -hmm. myth of Theseus. I said, what are the the ingredients in the myth of Theseus? And it's quite simple. It's the hero pattern. Mm -hmm. And the hero pattern is not just the you know, Campbell's hero cycle mm-hmm. that he talks about in Hero with a Thousand Faces. But hero theory is essentially very simple. You have a hero who has to solve a puzzle and go into the puzzle, solve the puzzle to kill the monster. And if you think about this, this is the pattern for, say, the uh, story of Jesus on Easter, it going down to the underworld, which is the puzzle, and he has to kill, overcome death, which is the monster. If you take a look at, say, Law and Order on television or CSI, all the detective shows are all following the same pattern. Yeah. You've got the heroes, the, the, the police, you've got the puzzle, which is the murder, and you've got the murderer, who is the monster.
1: What do you make of the symbology of the bull?
0: Well, the the bull's wild; it's untamed. But there's something horribly masculine about it. Right. He's he's the it's the uber masculine idea that, in fact, you not only have a creature who's um, you know hypersexual in many ways, mm-hmm. but you also have a creature who's armed, and he's not armed um, in terms of weaponry that you would, that most people would hold in their hands. He's armed with the weapons on his head, the horns, and so forth. And so that there's this very idea, very phallic, uh, yeah. yeah, very phallic. But the 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 the, the I suppose the, the 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 fearfulness of the bull is what he carries in his head. And it's interesting when you look at classical mythology; it's whatever comes out of the gods' heads that's important. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's Zeus and and Athena coming right. out of Zeus's head. Um, you know, Dionysus, of course, is sexual because he leaps out of Zeus's thigh and so forth. Um, but there's something about the Minotaur having horns, which is quite horrific.
1: Yeah. It is, and, and, and also there is, there is another bull connection in this story. The origin of the conflict between uh, Crete and Athens was uh, the death of uh, Minos's son, Androges. Uh, when when he was in athens they they were quite jealous of his athletic accomplishments so aegis king aegis sent him on a mission to kill the marathonian bull and he died in the attempt and so this was minos's anger against uh, against athens which was another bull connection i just found that fascinating
0: yeah it is one of those myths that just keeps giving and giving and yeah it just yeah. doesn't get it, it,
1: doesn't, it, it just yeah. doesn't get tired and then and then of course it seems in the story of this story and in the Odyssey which we'll discuss Poseidon gets pissed off a lot. Oh yeah, in the
0: Odyssey he he says to Odysseus okay you're not getting home, you know um and um it's interesting that he he is because he's the via, he's the god who controls the roadway for, for the ancient yeah. world the sea um that he's in fact uh, he's he, he he's someone who Uh, is not, in fact, predisposed towards the people that we would consider, like, the good guys. Yeah. Um, If you take a look at the Iliad, Mm -hmm. for example, he's on the Trojan side. Um, Athena and Zeus are sort of on the Greek side and everything like that. It's interesting that when you come Mm -hmm. right down to it, though, uh, what Poseidon underlies and seems to underscore is the fact that there's two very different mentalities Mm -hmm. at work in Western literature. One is called the pagan—I call the pagan classical mentality, Mm -hmm. where you have God's plural. And because you have God's plural, you have a dysfunctional universe. And because it's a dysfunctional universe, nature is animate. It's uh, it's infused with spirits and Mm -hmm. so forth. And the result of putting a foot wrong in an animate universe is tragedy. Now, the other operative sort of mentality in Western literature that comes along and challenges that— is the Judeo-Christian mentality, where you have God, capital G, singular, who is not, in fact, at odds with the other gods. He's got a plan. Rather than having fate or fortune, as you have in the classical world, you have providence, Mm
1: -hmm. which is
0: the divine plan. Um, You don't, in fact, have um, destruction. You have grace. And the idea in the Judeo-Christian universe is that because there is a plan, everything works out in the end. Mm -hmm. And because everything works out in the end, the operative result is not tragedy. It's comedy. And it's interesting that how do you see this manifested in our world now? And the simple answer is compare Washington, D.C. to Ottawa. What is Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. is, in fact, a replica of Rome. It's a classical reconstruction right down to the temples.
1: And the seven hills. The seven hills and all yeah.
0: like that. It's the idea of Troynevant and so forth. What do you see when you go to Ottawa? Well, it's interesting that Canada and the U.S. both share the same founding source text. Um, the United States is modeled on the Aeneid. Um, but Canada is modeled on the later version of the Aeneid, which is Arthurian Romance, uh-huh. where instead of having... Single leader like an Aeneas, mm-hmm. you know, like someone who is held up to be perfect or should be perfect and probably isn't perfect, you know, under current circumstances. In Canada, we have three chosen knights who, in fact, uh, undertake a grail, so a, a grail Eucharist and so forth. And but if you take a look at Ottawa, Ottawa is all built. Like Gothic cathedrals and Gothic hunting lodges. Mm-hmm. If you go into the House of Commons and you're walking around the lower level, it's like Saint Chapelle in Paris. It we it, the, you see, what happened was we rejected the classical version of the Arthurian legends for the medieval version of the Arthurian legends. And the difference is that what's governing the the American version of Arthurian of, 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 of the of the, the Aeneid is in fact God's lowercase g plural, whereas in canada it 's god 's capital g singular, and the result is that in Canadian literature, uh because of this discrepancy, we can 't write death of a salesman we we can 't write tragedy in Canlet there is no tragedy in Canlet in the u s they embrace it in fact the tragedy you you 're supposed to see something terrible happen, and of course, if you take a look at miller 's death of a salesman it's Um, It's all about the betting on a character who is condemned by fate or fortune to lose. Fatal flaw. And, and of course, he's the low man. Yeah. But uh, his first name is Wilhy. (laughs) Willie Willie Loman. Uh, Yeah. And uh, in Canada, we don't have that. We always prefer the happy ending, the comic ending, where things work out because our universe is governed by the geo-Christian sort of side of the equation. The
1: theater critic Walter Kerr once said that uh, tragedy speaks always of freedom. And the interesting thing was the American founding fathers were very conscious that they were founding a new Rome. But Rome started as a republic... And, and it is an up, empire.
0: Well, here we are today. <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting too that that um, in terms of the founding principles, and I often explain this to my students when they say, "What's the difference between Canada and the U.S.?" And the simple answer is the three tenets. Mm-hmm. The American tenets <clears> are life. Liberty and the pursuit of happiness, which are Lockean in their nature. yes. Ours are Hobbesian in their nature, mm. which are peace, order, and good government. Yeah. And because we have peace, order, and good government, it means the, the question is, well, do we have inalienable rights? As the United States in fact outlines in their constitution, we don't have inalienable rights in mm. Canada. All our, law, all our rights are privileges that are dispensed at the pleasure of the crown. What we're looking at in Canada is a system that Boethius talks about, mm-hmm. in the consolation of philosophy, which is the order of God and nature, where, in fact, we have a hierarchy. And you can trace our hierarchy right from, in fact, your local MP, Versimco or Omodonte, you know, where <coughs> yes. I live, uh, all the way through to the House of Commons, through the Senate, it's the, also the path of a bill, to the mm-hmm. governor general who is the queen's representative in Canada. But mm-hmm. then it, because he is the queen's representative in Canada, you can trace the order of the chain of command, as it were, all the way back to the queen. And who is the queen responsible to? Dieu et mon droit, mm-hmm. you know, God in my right. She yes. is the anointed one. Yeah. So it goes right up to heaven. In the United States, you don't have that. So the United States is a, is an expression – of the pagan classical universe, whereas Canada is the expression of the Judeo-Christian universe. Now, this actually has larger ramifications with sports, of all Mm -hmm. things. Why? Because when you look at American sports, they play for trophies. The World Series trophy, the the Super Bowl trophy. It's all about uh, having an object. But in Canada, what do we play for? we play for cups we play for grails and you know our, you know whether it's the stanley cup and the the nickname for the stanley cup is the grail um the grey cup you know and uh, the the uh, memorial cup the allen mm-hmm. cup the man cup and what do you do with the cups you fill them full of you know spirits and you hold a
1: mini eucharist so and so in uh, yes and in um, uh, canadian hockey uh, who was sir galahad
0: well, it's Wayne Gretzky. There you go. Yeah, I mean, you the can, great you, one. Yeah, yeah the great <laughs> one. You know, and uh, what we're what we are reliving in Canada, and this is what our founding fathers realized when they rejected a cla- neoclassical design for the House of Commons in favor of a Gothic hunting lodge design for the House of Commons in 1867, is that what we are living in is what we're living is the Arthurian version of the Aeneid.
1: Now, do you think that was a conscious
0: philosophical decision? Yeah. Was it? Uh, totally, totally. Yeah. And, and it, it just keeps coming up all over the place. And if you go to, say, our universities, like Victoria College and mm-hmm. the University of Toronto, it's a medieval castle. You've got the central Old Vic you know, in the middle uh-huh. of it, which is the Bailey. Mm-hmm. And all the way around or the central keep, which is yeah. the towers. Uh-huh. All the way around that is an enclosed fortification of... Basically, you know, late, re, late medieval, early Renaissance English right. fortifications. And, and, so and so. Gothic
1: archite- architecture very much is forest-like. Yeah. You know, it's very much forest-like. Well, yeah. the,
0: there's the other difference because what you're looking at in the neoclassical world is a world that's based on mathematics. Um, it's on proportions. And you see this in the Renaissance, which is the revival of the, of the classical ideals, you right. know, where you have the, suddenly you have the resurrection of Vitruvius, for example, in the Renaissance, it's all based on proportions. Vitruvian man, that mm-hmm. drawing by Leonardo yes. da Vinci, yeah. um, you know, man's reach is equal to his height, and, and he's I, the measure of yeah, all things. And I can do I can, yeah. do the, I can yeah. spread my arms, mm-hmm. and you can measure from the tip of my middle finger to the tip of my middle finger, and it's exactly my height. I'm six feet tall, and that's exactly six feet. What you get then is not so much in in the Judeo-Christian world is not, in fact, a recognition of mathematics. You have a recognition of natural order, you know, organic order, as it were. And it's interesting that the question is, where's the dividing line between these two mentalities? Where does it fall? And the simple dividing line is in Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy which is one of the, to my mind, one of the seminal books of Western literature. He's not only asking why do bad things happen to good people. He's trying to say, okay, what is making me feel so badly about my current state of things? And the answer is fortune. So what he does is he overcomes fortune. He sends uh, the, the muses packing and he turns to Dame Philosophy. Well, who is Dame Philosophy? She is, in fact, not... Classical philosophy. Not
1: Fortuna. No. Not Fortuna. She is,
0: in fact, theologia. And she's got pi written on her as a kind of a nod to the to the, to the infinite, the unsolvable infinite, which is, is written on the hem of her gown. But what she does is she becomes a kind of, um, uh, I suppose, a figure of um, not so much of, of, of order, but of a kind of a figure of, of, who, of grace. And so that the uh, consolation of philosophy is all about overcoming, you know, the idea of of yeah, one, the classical one, one, world, once again,
1: I, the, the difference is you mentioned between animate and inanimate inna- yeah, and those are the two universes yeah. Yeah. and um, of
0: course God says to man to Adam in um, Genesis two. Okay, I'm giving you dominion over everything.
1: Yeah, so, I, f- I found that very interesting. Uh, yeah. The the constellation of philosophy. Uh, you mentioned in the book, it says the the root of uh, Boethius is do not trust what you see. Yeah. Okay. Do not trust what you see. Explain that a bit.
0: Well, Saint Augustine <clears throat> says the same thing. He says that the highest form <clears throat> of, in fact, the, or the way in which you talk to God, the way in which you can understand God, is through discernment. It's the ability to tell the difference between reality and illusion. Boethius says don't trust, you know, uh, the illusions of reality because it's like that old Frank Sinatra song, you know, That's Life. You know, you're shot down in April and back on top in June. He said all fortune is an illusion. Uh, the, the Boethius says that because all fortune is an illusion, you should, in fact, stand back and say, okay, well, what can we trust? And you simply say, well, you trust in God. You mm. trust in the whole idea that somehow, um, that even though bad things are happening to you and you're a good person, that somehow the wicked will be punished and the good will be rewarded, maybe not in this life, but in the next life. And because of that, uh, if you adhere to the order of God in nature, you are good. And if you basically abandon the order of God in nature, you are evil.
1: So Boethius's position is there is no chance in the universe?
0: Um, No, you you shouldn't recognize chance. You shouldn't bet on chance. You shouldn't go for a ride. But does he acknowledge there is chance? Um, He says that there's fortune. But the question is, uh, is it providence? And the, the, the simple answer is, yes, there's providence, that God has a plan. So that even if you can't see the plan, um, you trust in God because why? Because God is your true mm-hmm. home. It's an interesting uh, idea. That... Okay,
1: because even the Old Testament, um, uh, in Ecclesiastes, it says time and chance happens to them all. Oh, yeah. Even the Ecclesiastes, yeah, the Bible acknowledges there's chance. Yeah, and and well, bad stuff happens. happens. But right?
0: the, 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 here we go back. We go look at Job. Because Job's an interesting sort of, and I didn't mention this in the Golden Thread, but Job is the one book where God actually explains Himself, Job thirty-eight to forty-two. And uh, in Job, you know, what does Job do? Well, he refuses to curse God and die. So he is Mm -hmm. adhering to the principle that even though things have gotten bad, you know, it's not on him. He's done. He's done the right thing. He's in fact being stubborn about where he's going, Mm -hmm. what he's going to believe, and so forth. So. What you have is this dichotomy in, in, Western, in Western mentality between the Christian and the pagan classical.
1: Right. There is that tension to this day. There's yeah. the tension between Athens and Jerusalem, yeah. uh, reason and revelation.
0: And it, it's played out in something like um, Jonathan Swift's Battle of the Books. Yeah. And you, it's played out, for instance, in the debate between the Renaissance and the late medieval thinking. Um, and you see it in, of all places, in the 19th century. Because in the middle of the 19th century, the Enlightenment literally burns out, flames out with Romanticism, um, and Romanticism mm-hmm. is suddenly a retreat into nature, right. according to Kenneth Clark, mm-hmm. thinkers like that, um, and even Wordsworth sitting there looking at Tintern Abbey, you know, from his hill on, in, the, in the Welsh countryside, is saying, you know, there's something restorative in nature. The height of of the sort of the break with the classical, neoclassical mm-hmm. And comes rationality. In, and rationality. For Com- the
1: sensations. Yes. Yeah. For the senses.
0: Yes, yeah. yeah. it comes in Tennyson's uh, Idols of the King. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing. When Canada was becoming a nation mm-hmm. in 1867, the best-selling book in the English language was the Idols of the King. Um, and when, uh, the, when the founding fathers of the U.S., were um, you know drafting the Constitution, the one book I know that they had all read, and I actually went through the records of uh, William and Mary College in, in Williamsburg. Um, Thomas Jefferson signed it out constantly and never returned it. Mm-hmm. It, the cop, and the book was *Rasselas* by Samuel Johnson, oh, yes, yes. which is essentially a classical text. It's, yeah. in fact, co- quoting Horace. It's about the pursuit of happiness. Um, it's about the whole idea of poetry being a kind of mathematical order to the world. What you get in Tennyson is an entirely different ballgame. Mm-hmm. And what you have is, is – ca- in Ottawa, they are recreating Camelot.
1: I wanted to ask about the uh, Boethius' uh, do-not-trust-what-you-see aspect of his philosophy mm. because it, it it reminded me of something that I find troublesome, and that's a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, that there are no facts, only interpretations. And, yeah. and, and now we're in the age of alternate facts. Well, that explains yeah. Boethius yeah. because
0: Boethius says, look— <clears throat> Don't sit there. I mean, the first thing he does, uh, or first thing uh, Boethius does, mm-hmm. or, or Dame, or Dame Philosophy does when mm-hmm. she shows up in Boethius' jail cell, mm-hmm. is she sends the Muses packing. What are the Muses? Well, the Muses are playing on our emotions. Yes, we are reacting mm-hmm. to things emotionally rather than right. reacting to things rationally. Yeah, that's why Dame Philosophy, even though she is the sort of the um, the bridge between the two worlds. Right. She re- she actually
1: referred to them as sluts. Yeah, and she says, get out of here. She says,
0: and she sends them packing. And we, the whole point about Boethius is, in the classical world, everybody reacts to things emotionally. But, I mean, Oedipus plucking out his eyes in Oedipus the King. Well, you the, know, the,
1: the, the and, Roman attitude is anything but emotional. Yes. Yeah, and they're a, stoic. And that's an yeah.
0: interesting thing because yeah. you take a look at Book 6 of the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. Book 6 of the Aeneid does not read like a classical text. It reads Exactly uh, like a foreshadowing of Christianity. And to even to drive this point home, Virgil has a poem called the Fourth Eclogue, mm-hmm. which is like a rural the eclogues were rural singing matches between shepherds. Yeah. But he writes a whole series of these pastoral sort of country poems. And uh, in the Fourth Eclogue, he says, by the way, and he points to this young boy at Augustus's court. And, and he says, it's going to be during the reign, your your period of your consulship. And the guy says, I'm going to be a consul? Mm-hmm. He says, during uh, the reign of your consulship, polio, he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, there will, will be a child who will be born, and he will sit on his mother's knee, and he will usher in a new age, a new golden age that mm-hmm. you have, say, in book one of of Ovid's Metamorphosis. What you have there is the depiction in in the fourth eclogue. Of the Madonna and Child. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the little boy sitting on his mother's knee smiling at him, right. which becomes ubiquitous in medieval art yeah. as part of the cult of the Virgin. And it's the idea that suddenly this child is born. And, of course, when's the child going to be born? Well, when was Paulio the, the uh, consul? He was 3 BC. And it's during his consulship, and there's a child born. And, and so that the idea then is that... Um, Look, we can't be emotional about these things. If you're, you take the Roman mentality and it becomes the basis for sort of uh, Pauline eschatology, you know, the whole idea of St. Paul's letters and St. Paul's ideas of heaven and hell and so forth. Right. It's, it, St. Paul was a Roman. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, at least by education. It it
1: got him out of jail once that he had (laughs) Roman citizenship.
0: And, and, you know, I mean, but he thought like a Roman. Yeah. And he explains Christianity Mm -hmm. like a Roman. Right. And that so the Corinthians, for instance, is essentially – Saying you know, um, don't sp- don't speak in tongues. You know, 12- twelve Corinthians and thirteen Corinthians. Don't lo- You know, though low though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, I'm nothing if I do not have charity. But charity is not just giving to the poor. It's the Latin idea, the Roman idea of caritas, mm-hmm. which is in fact selflessness. Mm-hmm. It's the whole idea of generosity of spirit, and that tends to get lost. Um, why? Because in Christian thinking. There's essentially two branches of Christian th- philosophy. One is theologia, which is, in fact, the philosophy of God. Mm-hmm. But the other one is, in fact, uh, kerygma, mm-hmm. which is the practice of, and I talk about this in Heroes, kerygma, which is the act of doing good things, yes, not not just thinking about them. Well, what happens is Mm -hmm. krigma kind of gets shoved to the side over the years and so forth uh, in favor of theologia, simply because someone like like St. Thomas Aquinas comes along and gives us an incredibly vast universe Mm -hmm. of theologia where Mm -hmm. he reconciles Aristotle to Christian philosophy and so forth, Christian thinking, and to Boethius in particular. But the whole idea of krigma is driven by katektos, uh, the whole idea of giving to mm-hmm. the self, selfless giving.
1: I also wanted to back up a little bit and talk uh, somewhat more about the hero figure. Yeah, sure. In, in the he- hero figure, you've got different kinds of heroes. You have, uh, well, for example, Prometheus was a hero. The Titan was a hero. Yeah. You know, he was a hero of mankind. Yeah. I mean, he uh, actually, in some myths, he created mankind out of clay, mm-hmm. He cheated the gods in favor of man mm. and was punished for that. But then we have human heroes, despite the fact that they might have had divine fathers, mm. and apparently uh, Poseidon, in some, uh, in some myths, uh, was uh, Theseus's father, not Aegis, but mm. Poseidon. But they're flawed. Mm -hmm. They're flawed. You've got lies. You've got betrayals. The whole myth of Theseus started with the betrayal of a god. Mm -hmm. Now we have Ariadne, who helped out Theseus. Mm -hmm. And what did he do in return? He abandoned her on Naxos. He abandoned her, right?
0: Love Uh, him and and leave him sort of thing.
1: Unbelievable. Aeneas abandoned Dido. I mean, you've got guys.
0: um, Well, they have a vision. Mm -hmm and they're going to achieve that vision that's called destiny. Yeah. And you see where you see destiny really sort of playing out is in one of the later books of the Iliad. Mm-hmm. And I don't talk about this in the Golden Thread but I touch on this in Heroes. Um there's a scene in in the in the Iliad where Aeneas, who's a prince of Troy, mm-hmm is out on the Plain of Ilium, and he's battling with the Greeks and so Mm -hmm. on. And he gets thrown from his chariot, and he breaks his leg. And he looks up, and he's surrounded. He's lying in the dust, and he's surrounded by the Greeks who have all their spears raised, and they're about to skewer him 500 ways from Sunday. And suddenly, seen missing. And he wakes up, and he's in the tower. He's in one of the towers of Troy. Mm. And the battles stop for the day. It's like late afternoon, early evening. The sun is coming in. There's a soft breeze blowing, and his mother Aphrodite is standing over him. And he says, you know, kind of like, is is this heaven or or is is this Iowa or is this heaven, you know, sort of thing, question. He says, am I dead? And she says, no. He says, why, why am I not dead? And she says, because it is not your destiny. Um, Aeneas is driven by destiny. Um, what is destiny? Well, destiny is essentially the trajectory that is foretold for you, and you cannot avoid it. Mm-hmm. It is the sense of inevitability that you are driven toward. Now— Classic a, fatalism. It's classic fatalism, but it's also a premonition of where you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, just giving, I personalize this when I was three years old my mother walked me through Victoria College she'd graduated from Victoria College it was mm-hmm. after the Santa Claus parade and she showed me, this is where mommy went to school and I turned to her in the lobby and I said to her, someday I will be a professor of English here and she says, what do you mean you, you don't even know what English is and I said, I will teach, yeah. I will teach books here and I, it, I was always my destiny and it, destiny is this feeling that you know where you're going to go, you know where you're headed. But you have
1: to make it happen. It well, doesn't you, just You can't avoid it. You yeah. see, this
0: is why yeah. the, the, uh, Aeneas' abandonment of Dido is so painful because he knows that he has to fulfill his destiny. And his destiny in the Aeneid is to pursue the ever-retreating horizon, that the end result is always a paradox, that it's not something absolutely tangible. You know, uh, I'm only a part-time professor at Victoria mm-hmm. College. Yeah, uh, I'm full-time a Georgian. Um, at one point, though, years and years ago, I um, I had a dream that I was going to be teaching in a in a town with big trees, and all the houses were Georgian houses. In it. And it, and you're I'm, in Barry, No, I'm in Barry, and yeah. I'm teaching at Georgian. Right, right. <laughs> right. You know, it's 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 a very weird thing. Um, you sort of it, it's a premonition. I think it's not. Just, it's more than just a premonition. It's the sense that. You know that that circumstances and events are launching you towards in a certain direction, and you're going to get there. Um, well,
1: well, cynically, couldn't one say that it was simply a self-fulfilling prophecy?
0: That's one way of interpreting. Yeah. <laughs> but the other way of interpreting it is to say, well, okay, no matter w- what you do, you you can't avoid it. It's going yeah. to happen. Um, you know, it's like being in a car crash and you see it coming before it happens. It's slow
1: motion. Slow motion, yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, um, so, the,
0: you know, the whole point uh-huh. about destiny is, you see, in the classical world, there are three unforeseen elements. There's mm. fate, yes, which is, you know, the length of a person's life, the strength of a person's life and so forth. There's destiny, which is the trajectory. But then there's fortune. Mm-hmm. And fortune is like up and down. It's it's the wheel of fortune, whether it – Shakespeare talks about it yeah. in Kent's speech in King Lear where he says, fortune, good night, turn smile and turn thy wheel once more. Oedipus talks about the wheel of fortune. Right. Um, you know, uh, Boethius talks about the Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, King
1: Lear was a very Sophoclean play. Oh, it, it, yeah. totally
0: Sophoclean. It, it, it's uh, There had been a French edition about 1594. Um, the, the, the the Theban plays had not been translated in English, but Shakespeare read the French edition. And he, you can see he's cribbing it. He's borrowing the images and so forth. Um, and he then he does you know well, well uh,
1: you have a wonderful quote in your book from T.S. Eliot immature poets imitate mature, mature poets, poets steal yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, he said that to Robert Giroux over lunch yeah. one day and yeah. it, it, but it's it is true I mean um, here's the thing about literature and this is what <clears> was driving the golden thread. That this is a record, this is almost like a criminal record of theft. Um, in or collaboration. collaboration. Let's be kind. Collaboration. Well, <laughs> it, it could be a, It's a conversation yeah, because yeah. in Canto 3 of the Inferno, Dante suddenly appears in hell with Virgil. And after, you know, the Canto 1, where he is midway in his life's journey and he runs down the steps, Canto 2, where he meets the shade of Virgil, Canto 3. He's being shown in the, through the vestibule of, of hell, and he sees this parade of poets coming along. Mm-hmm. And Dante says, are they who I think they are? And Virgil says, yes, and he names them all in order. There's yeah. Homer at the head, and there's Luke, and then there's Horace and so forth. And he names all these poets. And then they have a little sort of huddle, mm. a little scrum, and they leave Dante out of it. And Dante says, then they turned to me and they beckoned me and they invited me in among them. Uh And suddenly that's the giveaway on Dante's part, that not only is he a made man in terms of of, of poetry, but that he is in fact um, participating in an ongoing conversation that is a parade. Now, now Don Thomas, D.M. Thomas, the British novelist, once explained Russian literature to me me as a, a train. He says, in the front front of the train, you have people like Lermontov, and you've got Potem- Potemkin you know, and some mm. of Pushkin, Pushkin and Lermontov, and some of the early ones, and then you have Gogol in the middle, and mm. you have Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, and then you have, you know, uh, S, and some of the the twentieth century figures, and and uh, Mandelstam, and so forth. Right. Fall in the final carriage, the whole point is, it is easy to see literature as not only a continuum, but as a kind of a railway train. But if you take a look at what is said in the actual texts, they're all cribbing each other. They're all, in fact, mm-hmm. r- repeating each other. Now, Harold Bloom has a, a theory called the anxiety of influence, which says that the driver behind all of this is an Oedipal complex on the part of the writers who are essentially saying, well, if I take or steal from my poetic uber right. I get to murder him. Uh, I don't think it's it's that violent. I think what it is is that there are conventions. If you take a look at someone like Giorgio Vasari, who writes Lives of the Artists that I talk about, um, he says that, you know, the Renaissance... And the whole idea of of being a cognoscente, someone who knows and possessing vertu or goodness is contingent upon six things such as designio and decoro. And decoro doesn't just mean the way of doing things. It means the way of doing things that you've inherited that you are building upon. And there's maniera, which is your style. There's eugeo, which is your judgment. And there's grazia and so forth. And um, all these elements, these these elements of of, of vision or art that made the Renaissance are actually the principles that are at work in literature in many ways mm-hmm. simply because we inherit the certain – we inherit certain ways of trying to discuss certain things. Um, I'm teaching a course right now at Victoria College called right. The Body and Exercise. And one of the things that we just looked at and I gave them a, a, like an essay to do on it were what we call the d- definitions of men. Um, I, f- I forget the Latin term. I think it's definis ominous or so like that. And the whole point is that everybody has a go at it. What is man? Mm -hmm. And, of course, Virgil in Book 6 of the Aeneid says, well, man is born of the dust, but he's got – every particle of dust has a little bit of heaven in it. Mm -hmm. So we all contain the spark of heaven. And, you know, eventually after so many years, if we lead a righteous life – we get to go to Elysium, which is heaven. And after so many years in Elysium, our souls get recycled. They get dipped in lethe, and our hard drives are erased, and then we're born again. You know. And then you take a look at, um, at the Bible. The Bible has, contains a whole series of these definitions of man. And then you take a look mm-hmm. at Dante and in the Paradiso. Um, uh, I, I think it's Canto 10 of the Paradiso. Right. Dante offers, in fact, a definition of man. And then Hamlet comes up with the definition of man. What a piece of work is man. Having? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that all the writers, they've all read each other. And then they're all saying, well, I would like to do this differently. And, of course, one of the great tip-offs about writing and rewriting being an active force in the great books and being an active force in the not just the creation but the recreation of our literary consciousness is evident in the purgatorio where Dante gets his hands on the Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer turns up twice in the New Testament. turns the Protestant versions in the Gospel of Matthew, which includes, you know, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Mm -hmm. The Catholic version is in Luke, which stops before that, forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us. Well, what does Dante do? He rewrites the Lord's Prayer in the Purgatorio. And William Ewart Gladstone even does a translation of Dante's version of the lord's prayer which is much more humane and he says you know we don't mean to be you know mess ups god mm. he says we don't mean to you know mess up so badly but you know uh, go easy on us sort of yeah. thing in the next world and try to understand us and so forth so that dante's version of the lord's prayer from the purgatory is very moving very beautiful uh, but what is it well it's the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and they 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 keep rewriting the same ideas over and over and over. That's why I wanted to call the book "One Story," because. Mm-hmm. But the question is, what is the one story? Yeah. Well, I can see now, after many years, that within the one story, that there are actual patterns that keep recurring. There are narrative patterns Absolutely. and so forth. Mythic patterns, um, mythic archetypal patterns. patterns yeah. yeah. It, it, but it's actually much simpler than that. Yeah. It, it, archetypes are going to get into things. The structure of the thematic structure, say, of of <clears throat> tragedy is a U shape or is, a, is an inverted U, a right. rise and fall. Comedy is a U-shape where you have a nekousis at the bottom. And the word means is from the Greek word neck, meaning to go for a swim. It's where you hit the low point. You go through the underworld. You cross the Red Sea. Right. Uh, you have Holy Saturday and so forth. It's yeah. the moment in which the return or the resurrection begins. So you have tragedy. You have comedy. Then the next sort of thematic pattern kind of looks like a big snake. And it's a whole series of rises and falls and rises yeah. and falls and rises and falls. And the, what is this? Well, I remember talking to Northrop Fry about this. And he says, this is the romance pattern. It And the question is, what is the where do we see the romance pattern? It's in the Bible. right? It's also in the Aeneid.
1: Mm. And if
0: you take a look at the Aeneid, the chapters are basically madness, sanity, madness, sanity, madness, mm-hmm. sanity. It's like a pendulum swinging back and forth as you work your way through the Aeneid. And it's interesting that if you draw a line through the... The romance, this snake, you know, right. structure. If you draw a line through the middle, everything on top is represents worlds of life. Um, Eden, uh, the promised land, return to the promised land, Jerusalem, uh, the new Jerusalem. And everything in the bottom is like the fall, Egypt, Babylon, um, you know, and Holy Saturday and so forth on the bottom end of the scale. Then these were the, the there were two other patterns that Fry never quite cracked. And the next one is what I like to call the temporal pattern. And the temporal pattern is simply a circle. And where do we see this? This is the structure of Ovid's metamorphosis. Whenever you tell a history of time, time is cyclical. Um, you start off with order and so forth. You fall into loss. You fall into disorder, decay. And then on the other side, as you're going around almost clockwise mm-hmm. on, this, on this circle, What you end up with on the rise is the reestablishment of order. And if you take a look at Ovid's Metamorphosis, it talks about the folly of the gods, the end of the Golden Age, the loss of the Golden Age, originally mankind's state, true state. But what happens is that on the rise, you have the reestablishment of order through Rome and eventually Augustus. The fifth pattern is, in fact, simply a straight line, a flat line. It's the Iliad. It's um, Waiting for Godot. And the uh, little key in all of this mm. is Beckett's subtitle for Waiting for Godot, which he called a tragic comedy, where nothing happens. You don't get off of the flat plane; you're simply stuck in the same place. And um, uh, now, I was giving a talk at the University of Ottawa about uh, the golden thread and about the pa- these thematic patterns in literature, and uh, an engineering student, electrical engineering student, came up to me and i had the comic pattern the u shape the sine wave the yeah and basically <laughs> it's a sine a wave sine wave and yeah. it represents if you put them all together they represent unity the 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 the, the u the inverted u the yeah. u snake the circle and the flat yeah. line yeah i just
1: wanted to go uh, go back briefly to um to job mm. Restate Job as you understand the— uh,
0: Well, jo- Job loses everything. He's being punished by God. But how did that begin? Well, God they, himself God, was tempted. God, God is playing dice with the universe. He, well,
1: he was being you know, tempted by Satan. Satan. He succumbed to Satan's temptation. Yeah. But, right? he, he,
0: he, he, but here's the thing. Huh. This is what's how C.S. Lewis would yeah. explain it. Because C.S. Lewis has a book called A Preface to Paradise Lost, and he explains the nature of evil. And it's one of the paradoxes about the Judeo-Christian universe that you have to get used to—that God knows evil is going to exist. What is the what is the purpose of evil? Yeah. Well, it's to test man's free will. See, man is given free will, but the, and this is a point that's picked up by St. Augustine. What do you do with free will? Well, you have to exercise discernment, and you have to learn discernment. You yeah. have to learn the the difference between reality and illusion. Boethius says that all. All experience is r- rumor, mm-hmm. and this is a point that Chaucer makes. In well, it takes us back to Nietzsche's with... quote as yeah. well. and yeah. every, everything rumor. But what stock do you put in rumor? If you believe, if you believe that that good fortune, there's good fortune and bad fortune, mm-hmm. you will become a victim of fortune.
1: And now we're into epistemology: what is real, what can what, what be could, confirmed? Yeah. And
0: know? Boethius says, "Don't put any stock yeah. in perceptions." Yeah. Either emotional, visual, or anything like that. He says that, and this is what Job does, you see, and Job is the test case for this mm. in the Bible, because Job says, I am not going to curse God and die. I'm simply sticking by, I'm going to be stubborn. I'm sticking by my beliefs. So God says in the end, Oh, well, I'll make everything all right for you. It's all right. Because Job gets all his servants and his cattle and everything restored. It's not all right because he's got dead wives. He's got a dead wife and a bunch of dead Happy ending,
1: not so much for them. Yeah. I
0: mean, (laughs) it's collateral damage. Yeah. Uh, How do you explain that away? But at least what you see in in the consolation of philosophy Mm. as it is being read, Mm. uh, as it's reading Job, is that, in fact, you can't believe anything you see because it's all an illusion.
1: Have you read um, Carl Jung's Answer to Job? No, i have not. Okay, you should read Answer to Job, in which basically he puts God Yahweh on the couch, and he concludes there's a fourth face of God, and that is evil. His his, his uh, analysis of God is that Yahweh is simply a psychopath. Uh, so it's a, it was very controversial yeah. when when he wrote this, but it's well worth reading.
0: Answer yeah. to Job, because it may be what's informing <laughs> Lewis in some ways in his yeah. to *Paradise Lost*, because God actually knows man's going to fall. Yeah, he knows man's going to suffer. So it's all death, a setup. It's all death. a setup. He, it's all set. Up. The question is, why is it a setup? And the the simple answer that C.S. Lewis comes up with, you know, who's you know, I in terms of Lewis's sense of Christianity and so forth. Um, Not that I'm apologizing for Lewis, but Lewis would say God intends mankind to fall so he can test mankind. Mm -hmm. Why? Because if mankind passes the test, mankind returns to his place of proximity with God. Now, the difference is – and this is – there's three creation stories in the book of Genesis in the first five books. The first – in the, in the first one and the third one, uh, mankind is created without consciousness. He's created with consciousness in the second one, which is the Garden of Eden, where he's given the act of free will and he has to make a choice between the two trees um, and the fruit of the two trees. But the other ones mankind just created. The point that Milton, I think, was making in Paradise Lost, and Milton subscribed to a philosophy called millenarianism, which where, in fact... Mankind has to learn his way back to God. And the question is, why would you have to learn your way back to God when we were originally close to God? And the simple answer is, well, we were kind of morons (laughs) in our first manifestation. The second – when God, in fact, eventually – when you have the, the reconciliation of, of God and man, when you have Christ the bridegroom marrying Christ in the book of Revelations and so mm-hmm. forth um, and the fulfillment of, say, are the, the types and so forth that you've right. seen in the Song of Solomon and the same types that you've seen in the book of Daniel, the, um, which in Revelations is very much a commentary on Daniel. Um, it's the whole point that, the, um, uh, that when mankind returns to God, when, when God and man eventually intersect, mm-hmm. and the inter- it's the intersection of time and eternity right. represented in the cross. But it's also um, the, the fact that when mankind eventually can have a, another conversation, a real, honest-to-goodness, grown-up conversation with God, it'll be on God's terms.
1: Bertrand Russell was once asked, what if God actually exists? What would you say to God face-to-face after you die? He would say, Lord, you did not give me sufficient evidence.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it also takes us back to what yeah. Milton said after the massacre yeah. in Piedmont. They said, it oh, wasn't this terrible. Where was God? And Milton's answer was, where was man?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, know, well, God didn't kill them. Mankind men killed men. Yeah.
1: Well, see, uh-huh. it's, 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 God gets the credit, but never the blame. And whether there's free will or not, I really enjoyed Christopher Hitchens' response to the question. He said, Yeah, uh, there is, uh, because we have to have it.
0: Well, it, it, it's also a sense that, that it, it makes us, it gives us the opportunity to recognize evil, but it also gives us the recognition, the ability to deny good. Now, that seems awful. At one point, I was, I was talking to Carper Collins about writing a book called Necessary Evil. Um, where, in fact, it, I, I was taking Lewis's thesis that, that God, in fact, allows evil to exist as a test for mankind, but not simply just a test for mankind. It's the, it's the ability for mankind to sort of say, I see, I see this and I see that. Mm-hmm. And Boethius says that evil is essentially the conscious rejection of the order of God and nature. And uh, if you just simply say, "Well, I'm not going to reject the order of God, nature," then you're looking at Job, mm. and this is what Boethius—the point Boethius is making the Consolation of Philosophy. I'm not—I—I sh- I mean, I've looked at the, this question of evil as a kind of a, as as a kind of a presence, and you know, yeah, I mean, I, I can buy the fact that God knows evil, mm-hmm. but here's the whole point, point. and this is the point Lewis makes. You don't need evil to define what good is. Good just is. Mm-hmm. Good exists. But in order to define evil, evil has to be a rejection of good. So you need um, good. Good doesn't need evil to 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 exist. But mm-hmm. evil needs good to exist.
1: So light doesn't need dark. Yeah. How can you distinguish the two? Wow, well, that's, that's <laughs> an
0: interesting question.
1: Well, uh, let's go back to heroes again and the Odyssey. Mm-hmm and flawed heroes. Odysseus was quite a sketchy character, wasn't he?
0: Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the question is, what is Odysseus? Well, he's essentially a, um, he he's mankind in all of mankind's foibles and follies and so forth. Um, I, I, I was fascinated because, you know, different writers have had a go at rewriting the, the Odyssey, mm-hmm. Virgil, for example. But the one that fascinates me is Derek Walcott's uh, Omeros. Um, The word Omeros is the uh, Greek word for Homer, of course, Mm -hmm. but it means hostage. And um, the original Homer, according to Herodotus, was not a Greek. He was, in fact, a Trojan. And um, he was probably kidnapped from his home in Asia Minor as a 10-year-old boy. He was taken to the island of Chios where he was blinded. All, and, all my
1: Greek ancestors are screaming
0: right now. <laughs> yeah, well, and justly so, justly so. And, of course, what happens is that Ho- that Homeros, who may be Demodocus yeah. in Book Eight of the Odyssey, that what he uh, w- what he's doing is he becomes the memory for the community. Mm. He becomes the library, the public records and so forth. The question is, what? how do you sum up... Um, you know essentially, or create a catalogue of human behavior someone who's both um a, a rogue but someone who's both a noble and it's interesting that when sophoc when Aristotle comes along and takes a look at both uh, poetry and drama, he has to deal with the odyssey and he looks at 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 um at particularly Odysseus and it, it, in many ways, Aristotle's definition of the good human being is an anti-definition of Odysseus. Yes, you know uh, he does not really possess virtue, but he, pres- he But there's there's admirable traits that he has. He wants to go home. You know,
1: well he fought yeah. bravely in the war, but he yeah. tried to get out of it. He pretended to be insane.
0: Yeah. He was the well, f- one of
1: the first draft dodgers. Well, they all they also send
0: him off to get Philoctetes, for yeah. example and he's willing to sort of go do, go and make side trips and things like yeah. that. Um and uh, but in the case of um uh, of Odysseus yeah he's a, he's a, he's a troublesome character in that um he qualifies, according to his status in society, as one of the two types of people that Aristotle says you meet in drama and you meet in literature. Yeah. Aristotle says there's two types. One is the spodaios, the highborn, and the other one is called the phallos, the lowborn. Now, it's it, it, it's only in the 20th century that we get this whole idea of highborn and lowborn confused. Arthur Miller has an essay that he writes in 1948, shortly after the first production of Death of a Salesman at the Morocco Theater in New York. And he says that in the 20th century, the seat of tragedy has shifted. Originally, tragedy belonged to the spadaos, it belonged to the highborn. But according to... What where the world was in 1948? Um, you know, you have to refer to say the Life magazine interview with King Farouk of Egypt, and Farouk mentioned to Life magazine someday there'll only be five kings left in the world, and they said, well, who will they be? Wonder- hoping he'd name nations, and he says the four in the deck of cards and the one on the throne in England. <laughs> um, that Odysseus shows all of the attributes. Of a low-born person, uh, he is not, in fact, noble. He's in, not. He's not anywhere near Nestor, or anywhere near as gracious and refined and well-mannered as Menelaus is, and so forth. Uh, when Telemachus goes and meets Menelaus, and uh, you know, and stops off with Menelaus and Helen, yeah, he behaves like a rogue and lives by qu- his wits. Lives by his wits, and he even denies who himself. He yeah. negates his own personality uh, in the Cyclops cave. Uh, Freud says that the Odyssey is the story of a man waking from a dream. And, you know, you don't always know who you are in a dream. Yeah. but Or whether you're still dreaming or, or you're awake. you're still dreaming or awake. Yeah. And, you know, the whole idea of the wine-dark sea and the the hypnotism of, of, of the sea and everything right. like that uh, comes into play. But Odysseus behaves like a phallus. And the phallus are the lowborn or the low-man. And Arthur Miller says in his de- essay on Death of a Salesman, that in the 20th century, the seat of tragedy, he mm-hmm. says this is a key thing. The seat of tragedy has shifted and the seat of epic has shifted as well from focusing on high-born characters to focusing on low-born characters because tragedy and epic are now universal experiences. Whether it's uh, the, the hobbits in, you know, in Tolkien uh, or Lord of the Rings and so forth or whether it's Leopold Bloom in Ulysses. Uh, who is essentially a lowborn man or Willie Low Man in Death of a Salesman. Arthur Miller says that there is no such thing anymore as the as the literature of the highborn that are hard to believe. Um, it's one of the reasons why when Renee Zellweger came on the screen as Judy Garland. I thought she's not gonna win the she'll win an Academy Award for a Performance, but that film won't win. Why? Because the, the literally in the 20th century. All the paradigms shifted. So the question is, what is Odysseus? Well, Odysseus is both. He's both a phallos and a spodios. And um, he moves so beautifully between the two worlds. Yeah. Um, he can disguise himself as a beggar, um, except his dog, his dog Argus. And the dog Argus, when he comes, finally comes ashore in Ithaca, and he's disguised as an old beggar, the dog looks up at him and hasn't seen him since the dog was a puppy. And the dog falls over dead.
1: Because it, it has been 20 years. 20 years. 10 years of the Trojan yeah. War, 10, Tro- years yeah, well, 10 years of wandering.
0: 10 years of wandering. But he recognizes him.
1: Yeah. But but no. but Odysseus cannot bring himself to acknowledge the dog because his identity yeah. would be revealed. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's
0: only when um, – the the, the the interesting thing is, and this is what reduces Odysseus to a very human character who is neither a phallus nor Spadios. The thing that, in fact, really asserts his identity is when he tells Penelope the secret of their marriage bed, and that's that's intimate knowledge, you know, and something every you know, people yeah. share. you know.
1: And then he wasn't too kind to her maids, was he? <laughs> no. Uh,
0: well, you know, I mean, they were. You know, the whole thing was a. It was. He was cleaning up an enormous mess. Uh, well, well, he he was yeah. indeed.
1: That was part one of my conversation with Bruce Meyer, discussing his national bestseller, The Golden Thread, a reader's journey through the great books. Be sure to join us for part two of that discussion. For CNIB's Unbound, I'm James DeNoss. Thank you for listening.
0: For more CNIB Foundation podcasts visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.